It's no surprise that updating the electricity grid today will make for a better tomorrow. Increased self-sufficiency is just one of the benefits. The Great Grid upgrade will also boost the economy and create new green jobs. And best of all, you can continue doing the things you love, like watching the latest epic nature documentary or listening to this podcast while caring for the planet too. Find out more at nationalgrid.com. Hello, and welcome to Season 9 of The Plodcast, the nature and countryside podcast from BBC Country Farm magazine. My name is Fergus Collins, and I'm the host of these audio adventures. In this season, we're looking at capturing spring across Britain as it unfurls in 12 different landscapes. From mountain to heath, coast to meadow, we will be sharing the joys of the new season with you and encountering some wonderful wildlife and marvellous people along the way. In this second episode... We focus on one of our most common habitats, but also one that is perhaps most taken for granted, and that's farmland. And who better to talk spring on the farm than Country Files' Adam Henson? As travel restrictions at the time of recording, back in early March, prevented me from heading to Adam's farm in the Cotswolds, I left it to Adam to convey the joys of life there over the magic of Zoom. And he never disappoints. Brilliant, how are you? Really well. Um, yeah, I had a busy day. So I was on this morning um, with Philip Schofield and Holly Willoughby talking about lambing and, uh, and the book and, um, yeah, sort of food provenance and, you know, what's happening on the farm. So that was good. In a normal time, we'd I'd ideally hope to be wandering around the fields with you, but we live in strange times. So uh, we're going to do this over Zoom. Um, how have you fared in lockdown as a, you know, as a farmer and obviously with the farm park? How's, how's it all gone? Yeah, so initially when we locked down March 2020, um, it was incredibly hard. We knew that that the government was going to lock us down. And so the Cotswold Farm Park, our tourist enterprise, was already open. We'd been open for February half term. We were in the middle of lambing our ewes. And we as a business decided to close a few days before the national lockdown. And we sent all our staff home and we didn't know what would happen. And... um, for us, as we, we're leaseholders of the Cotswold Farm Park and we're tenants of the farm. So me and my business partner and our families live in tenanted houses on a rented property. And um, we rely you know, on the Cotswold Farm Park as an integral part of our business. So to send everybody home and not know what was going to happen at the beginning of our season was terribly worrying. And so I have to say, um, you know, I posted something on social media and was very emotional and, and it was from the heart and we didn't know what was going to want to happen. Then um, furlough, this furlough scheme came in. I didn't even know what furlough meant. No, so no. I had to look it up. <laughs> and there was all sorts of government support. And eventually we got open on July the 4th and, and we had a fantastic um, support from our customers. It all came flooding back. And so we had a very good summer's trading. And I think people were desperate to get back out into the countryside and the fresh air and see the animals. And and so that worked well for us during the summer. But on the farm, um, we've had to keep our social distance with the staff, um, lots of hand sanitization, sanitizing machines, scrubbing out when one driver gets in, another driver gets gets, uh, out. Um, So it's been difficult, but thankfully the entire staff have remained fit and healthy um we haven't had anybody had to go into isolation or be ill because like so many businesses they're skilled individuals who are specialist in their field so a machine operator now 
to drive our drills and combines and those sorts of things are technical wizards. You know, they're brilliant at it. You can't just employ any old person to jump on those machines. And the same with things like sheep husbandry and cattle husbandry and, you know, working in the lambing shed, you know, you've got to be an expert. So to lose one or all of our lambing team would have been disastrous. Yeah. And so um, so we fared, we fared okay, thank you. Yeah, there goes my, uh, my, I was going to ask you for a job, but obviously if you need to be specialised on these things, that's, that's <laughs> um, also you've been, you've obviously been filming for the TV programme all the way through. How's that gone? Because obviously there is a sort of intimacy with the cameramen and the sound people and, and, and all that. Has that posed quite a challenge too? Yes, it has. Um, what happened was the um, series producer and executive producer decided for the presenters to stay in the regions that they live in. And for me, of course, I'm very fortunate to live on a farm. And so I was working with one self-shooting director. So he organised the scripts, um, did the sound, um, did the filming, edited it remotely with an editor. Um, and then we did the voiceover remotely as well. And so... Um, but we carried on filming. Um, we were allowed to, as um, you know, sort of considered as important workers to continue entertaining the nation. And so Countryfile carried on operating and people loved watching the show. I think bringing a bit of the countryside to their living rooms in those difficult periods were, you know, very welcomed. And so for me, um, having the farm as, as my workplace but also to be able to film on and all the activities going on was was fantastic and um and although we had to be very careful um me and the producer I was working with and we kept our distance and traveled in different vehicles and I wasn't allowed to carry the kit and all those sorts of things we made it work and and I think it worked well it looks pretty seamless and um it's been brilliant and obviously providing as you said providing that little window that vicarious escape into the into the countryside Yes. And I think, you know, for me, as someone who's been born and brought up in the countryside, I don't ever take it for granted, but I think it's really made me appreciate it much more. Um, when you hear of the thousands, millions of people that suddenly can't get away from their home, particularly if they live in towns and cities, they can't get out into the countryside. What a huge value it was for me and my family and staff that work here to be able to walk out of our back doors and working this environment but also enjoy it and we could you know go for walks with the dogs and lots of fresh air and wildlife and farm animals and you know goodness me uh if i was going to be locked down i'd want to be locked down here yeah lovely lovely exactly and well nice and, and you could share that well let's share more of it because you live in the cotswolds for listeners obviously this isn't a visual uh medium could you describe the farm a bit for people who haven't seen your farm on TV or um, would like a bit more detail, a little bit about what it looks like and what sort of fields, livestock, that sort of thing? Sure, yeah. So we're about a thousand foot up, so we're quite high um, on top of the Cotswold Hills. And so beautiful rolling gentle hills with hedges and limestone, dry stone walls, that sort of yellow limestone. Um, and with deciduous woodland um, interdispersed between fields of an average size, sort of um, 20 or 30 acres would be average size, so not huge fields. And um, we have grassland, so 600 acres of grassland and about 1,000 acres of arable. So it's a 1,600-acre tenancy, or in modern money, that's 650 hectares. And on those fields, on the cropping, we grow wheat, barley, 
uh, oilseed rape, linseed, and various crops that we um, plant in the autumn and some in the spring that grow during the year and then come to harvest in uh, in August. So the oilseed rape produces those beautiful yellow flowers, the linseed, a lovely blue flower. And then you get those barley fields with the, when they produce the seed heads, they have the awns, which are the spiky bits at the top. And when they blow in the wind, it's like looking at the sea, you know, so beautiful scenery. And um, the grassland fields, half of it is grown um, quite intensively to produce plenty of grass for our livestock. And then the rest is in conservation areas. So wildflower meadows um, at this time of year, the skylarks will start to be singing and jumping up and flying up and down and making their beautiful song. Um, ground nesting birds like lapwings and partridges are around, lots of hares. We see the odd deer on the farm. In the evening, owls, foxes, badgers. So plenty of wildlife and um, spring is a beautiful time of year when the grass starts to green up, the buds are coming out on the trees, the wildflowers are starting to grow. And so the livestock side of things, we've got pigs, poultry, horses, donkeys, goats, um, lots of 13 different breeds of sheep and cattle. At the moment, most of those animals are in, in sheds. Um, because of the wet winter and cold wet winter um, but now we're about to start turning them all out into the fields and um, yeah so so I, I paint it as a beautiful chocolate box image which, which it is I mean it is a stunning place to live and work I've traveled all over the UK with country file and with work and for me the old adage there is no place like home rings true. Well I have visited it is really stunning and I'm so sort of really, you know, it's even more galling not to be able to go there today in spring, although it's really miserable today. So we'd probably be cowering in a shed, wouldn't we? We're sort of trying to stop the wind blowing our microphones away. But um, you talked about what's happening now. Uh, it is, a, it's, you know, this is our spring special. Um, so what is happening? What, we're in full lambing season now, are we? Yeah, so lambing across the country, it starts earlier down in the south in Cornwall and Devon when the weather's warmer and then gets later to sort of um, May time in Scotland where the weather's colder. And sheep being seasonal creatures, they'll only come into season to accept the ram in the autumn. And then five months later, they give birth in the spring when the grass starts to grow. And so for us, we lamb some early um, in February. And we do that for the Cotswold Farm Park. So we have um, our lambing set out so that their ewes are giving birth during February half term. So sadly, nobody could come and watch that this year or last. Well, they saw it last year, but then Easter is our next lambing um, tranche. So 350 ewes giving birth throughout April. Um, and um, when we're lambing, it's very busy. Yeah. So the goats have just started kidding now. So in between the first set of ewes and the second lot of ewes, we, we kid our goats. And um, when the, when we're in full flow lambing, we have a team of three stroke four people um, on a 24 hour shift. So um, some people will start at six in the morning and run till four in the afternoon and the next one four till midnight and so on. And we'll work through the night so that the ewes have got attention 24 hours a day and it's pretty full on. So the ewes giving birth, 90% um, of them get on with it by themselves. But if the lambs aren't correctly present, presented, so which is two front feet and nose first, we then have to manipulate the lamb into the right position yeah, and assist that you. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and then there's all the aftercare, getting the lambs well, getting them fed, getting them bonded with their mothers and then away into the fields. And then once they're out in the fields, then then there's a lot of work to continue to care for them and look after them and check them on a, on a daily basis or twice a day. 
pigs give birth all year round. So we've got sows giving birth now. And uh, and then our cows will start. We just had a calf born the other night. And, um, and, and they will be starting spring and early summer too. So, so it's mainly the sheep that, and, and goats that are taking all our attention at the moment, birthing. So on breakfast TV this morning, you were, were you from the lambing shed? Or were you? I was, yes, that's right, yeah. So, so with um, there was actually nothing giving birth while we were there because we were waiting for our next lot of views to start, and uh, and the goats were due today, but nothing has given birth yet. So maybe tonight. Okay. Well, we can't have some live goat sounds and bleating of little lambs, but maybe we can superimpose them later. Um, <laughs> so you've got all the all the um, the other thing that people will notice. You can't fail to notice. You mentioned it earlier. Is the oilseed rape coming through? I'm always amazed how early it appears, this sort of yellow blanket. I mean, obviously, you know, you're higher up, so perhaps it's a little later from I'm down in the Usk Valley in Monmouthshire. Um, so that's presumably shooting up now, is it? Are you, you sort of... Um... Yeah, so that's starting to grow now very strong. So it, we planted in August um, last year, 2020, and then it grows two or three leaves and then will sit dormant during the winter months. And then as the weather starts to warm up now, it grows incredibly fast. And then so by May, it'll be in flower and you'll see those you know, golden fields of yellow. But what you'll see across the UK this year is less oilseed rape. Um, so there was a chemical that we used to use as a seed treatment to protect it against a bug called a flea beetle. Um, and that chemical is, is, is a neonicotinoid, which has been banned because it was discovered that it um, caused problems for the navigation of bees. And so it's been taken off the market. And as farmers, we've struggled to control the flea beetle, which will just eat the oilseed rape. Right. And so many of us have now reduced our acreage. Some people stopped growing it altogether and replaced it with other things. So what we've tried is um, is, is linseed. Um, so that produces an oil as well that's used in manufacturing and foodstuffs and treating timber. Um, and so half of our acreage that we would usually plant oilseed rape, we planted linseed this time. Really, because the flea beetle was so prevalent in your fields. Yeah. Well, wow. okay. Yeah, interesting. That's a story that we've sort of been covering on and off with the, the sort of the bands, the the fight backs, and the, the it's a it's a tricky one because um yeah. You hear all these stories about natural predation that you could encourage, but presumably you have to do quite quite a few years of building up those natural predators to make a make a difference. And you're you're operating on rapid turnarounds and we do, yes. And we and we do try and use natural predation where we can. So we have lots of conservation margins around the fields where there will be natural predators in there, but there's not very many things that eat the flea beetle, um, sadly. And um, so what we have done with our oilseed rape this time is we've used a, a camouflage. And so we grew, we planted the oilseed rape. But with it, we planted a, a plant called buckwheat. And yeah. the buckwheat grows over the oilseed rape. But we also use sewage sludge, so human waste um, that we use that's all been treated and, and carefully managed so that there's no nasties in it. Uh, it's all passed all the tests. And so we spread that on the oilseed rape as well. So we put a camouflage crop above it and spread this um, manure on it. And so the flea beetle, A, can't smell it, and B, can't see it. And, uh, and it's worked. And so the oilseed rape we have grown has grown very well. And I think farmers, you know, it, if scientifically it's proven that we're not doing the right thing, we absolutely have to change our farming practices and think of other ways of managing our crops and our animals and our land. And 
and, and it's it's a forever changing situation that you know we just have to be quick-footed and, and learn how to adjust and I think the whole mindset of agriculture is changing somewhat in the UK and we're thinking much more carefully about the environment soil management carbon sequestration all those sorts of things are are very much in the mind of the modern progressive farmer because you mentioned slurry and obviously there's quite a lot about in press about watercourses and slurry and a lot of um pollution of rivers from some of those very sort of nitrogen concentrated you know, basically animal effluent and it's um is it, what's your sort of advice to people to farmers for sort of keeping that out of rivers i mean i know it's, it varies from farm to farm and, and weather conditions but is there a sort of good practice that yeah there they're very there very much is a good practice but there's also legislation and so um there's nitri- nitrogen vulnerable zones which are basically where you get high rainfall and the the fertilizer or nitrogen or manure gets washed off the land so I think Wales now is totally nitrogen vulnerable zone or will be very soon. And so you can't spread farmyard manure in the winter. You can't spread fertilizer at certain times of year. And so um, those are, you know, legislation, but also in areas that aren't in those zones, there is best practice that you have to follow. And um, I think as agriculturalists and farmers that are um, doing a good job would be very, very cautious and careful about spreading um, fertilizers and those sorts of sprays and any any kind of pesticides near water courses. You know, it's against the law. And if you get caught and you get found out and 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 uh, prosecuted, the fines are enormous mm. and even prison sentences. So you know, y- you have to be pretty foolhardy to to behave like that. And I, in the defence of farmers, sometimes they get a bit of a bad rep and they don't necessarily deserve it. So the, the river Windrush runs through our farm here, a beautiful uh, limestone stream. And that is a tributary to the Thames, comes all the way to London. And um, we uh, there's, a, there's a group locally working very, very um, carefully testing the water. And they found that the sewage treatment plants along the Windrush, when they are brimming to overflowing they just open the sluice sluice gates and raw sewage is going into the stream which is just atrocious there's a lot of a lot of a lot of work to be done there but no it's really interesting and it's such a busy job being a farmer um and you're constantly worrying about crops and livestock do you get a chance to sit in your wildflower meadows and look at a skylark ever? Or, I mean, are you kind of just have <laughs> to do that? It's like you put up a hammock and never use it sort of thing. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I, I do, thankfully. Um, my life is very busy and I am I am rushing around quite a lot. Um, but I'm in a very fortunate situation that I've got a fantastic business partner and he and I have built the business over the last 20 years in such a way that... Um, we have employed uh, very good managers and teams below them that have um, responsibility and are experts in their areas. So we have a livestock manager, an arable manager. We farm in a joint venture arable operation with a neighbour. So we're farming four and a half thousand acres over six different farms. We don't own any land, but because we're working with a neighbour, we have all the tip tech tip-top technology and all the big machines and key operators managing those machines. And because of that scale, we can employ a bespoke manager to look after them. So I don't drive the combine anymore or the drill or go out 
plowing um and i'm not in the lambing team i i you know i help out whenever i can but i'm not part of the rotor so i you know a, a very office based and very I do a lot of media work a lot of corporate work a lot of other bits and pieces but i do try and finish work by six o'clock half past six um i try and get at least one day off for the weekend if i can and then my joy is going for walks with my partner and my children and taking the dogs and and I am always pointing out the skylarks and you know looking at the footprints in the snow and you know spotting wildlife and you know that is my solace really my enjoyment that you know conservation and wildlife someone asked me once what would be your job if it wasn't being a farmer and I said I'd like to be David Attenborough so I'm <laughs> I love I do really really enjoy natural history and, and wildlife that's really, that's really reassuring and lovely that, you know, the, the, the joy of being out on the land isn't sort of crushed out of you from the need to kind of make a, make a living from it. And, um, yeah, so the farm park obviously is a big part of your life there. Is there, it's a big, there's a big anniversary this year, is that right? That's right, yeah. So it's our 50th anniversary. Um, my dad and his business partner opened the Cotswold Farm Park in 1971. and um, they were standard farmers with sheep, beef, and arable. But then my dad started a collection of rare farm animals, so farm animals that were going out of fashion. And he really, to pay for his expensive hobby, the reason they were rare, they weren't commercially viable, so they didn't make any money. So to pay for his expensive hobby, he opened the Cotswold Farm Park with the permission of the landlord. And back then, diversification wasn't really thought of. I mean, his farming mates thought he was mate, mad in, in inviting you know the public onto the farm. And they had a little um, garden shed that they sold tickets from. My mum had a caravan that she made cups of tea and baked some cakes and did some catering. And they put leaflets around. My dad did lots of talks to WIs and those sorts of things. And they opened the gates to the public and didn't know whether anyone would turn up. And in the first year, they had 20,000 visitors and thought, wow, we've got something here. And so, and that's grown and developed over the years. It's still on the same footprint, and um, but we put up sheds and, you know, expanded all the buildings to rate retail and catering and all those sorts of things. And now we get 160,000 visitors. When we first opened, it was 5p for children and 10p for adults to get in. Um, it's a little bit more expensive than that now. I thought you were going to say a shilling and a farthing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so you, you're planning to reop- reopen relatively soon. I mean, we're recording this just for the benefit of, you know, it's mid-March now. Are you when when do you think you might be open for 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 business with the farm park and have people back in who are desperate to see a bit of green and some love some of your cute lands? Yeah, well, as long as the roadmap to recovery stays on track, we plan to open on the twelfth of April. That's what the rules and regulations um, show us at the moment. So twelfth of April will be open. Um, with all our fields and animals back on display. We, we're not allowed to use any of our animal barns or indoor spaces, but we are allowed to sell takeaway food and our retail can be open and our campsite will be open. We've got six beautiful lodges and um, glamping tents and pods, and then people can come with their self-sufficient you know, um, sufficient vans. So you're allowed touring vans and uh, camper really vans. Things, things. Well, I'm not moving in. Sounds good. So <laughs> lots, of, lots of people hopefully will come and visit. And if it's like last year, you know, people will be flooding back to get out into the countryside and in, and enjoy the, the things that I love, you know. And and I have to say, I I just thoroughly enjoy sharing all of the stuff that we have. So all of our rare breeds and young animals and lambs, but also 
you know we have a wildlife walk and and you know encouraging people to open their eyes and ears and look and see and listen and learn and i'm very passionate about encouraging people to learn about where their food comes from um and and i think you know with our team at the Cotswold Farm Park, they do a great job. Do you think people have, I mean, that's really interesting, connecting people with where food comes from. Do you feel that people are very disconnected these days from their, you know, they, they, they sort of lack that knowledge to choose properly what to eat because they don't know? I think, um, I think they do. It may be a bit of a sweeping statement, but I think there is a huge void of knowledge, yes. And um, it's disappeared from our educational system. So there's no GCSE in agriculture or land use or in the environment. We learn about history, yeah. we learn about religion, but we don't learn about our food. Mm. Um, and so we don't have that in our educational system. But also we're an incredibly urban population now and food is so readily available. You can walk into the supermarket and pick anything up whenever you want it. There's no constraints over seasonality. You can get strawberries all year round. And um, and so, and, and people don't really, a lot of people don't think about where it's come from. I think COVID probably has, when there was a food shortage and people were panic buying and lots of people went back to the local farm shop and local butcher, there has been a bit of a U-turn now and people are perhaps a certain section of society are thinking more carefully about where their food comes from which has got to be a good thing um and some people say you worried about the rise in veganism or vegetarianism and and absolutely i'm not i'm a farmer producing food and if people want to buy stuff i can grow it and uh, my partner is a vegetarian my daughter is too and my my son and i are just big meat eaters but um what i do get concerned about and sometimes frustrated by is quite militant sort of um antagonistic language and behavior about agricultural production systems that comes from people who don't necessarily have a very good base knowledge about what they're talking about and i think what we all need to do is learn more about it investigate more about it think more about it talk more about it and then we can have informed intelligent conversations and make the right decisions from an informed base brilliant brilliant well the column that you write for us is a great place to have that discussion we'll start that discussion um because we can keep choosing different subjects every month obviously but we're going to look at food provenance and look at you know essentially how this how all our different foods are produced in different systems and people can make their choice but um that's that's going to be fun. There was a question I had. It's about the public and about people visiting the countryside. Presumably, with a farm of sixteen hundred acres, you've got some public footpaths across your land. Um, can you offer people some advice on sort of because there's lots of people heading out to the countryside, sort of for the first time, and I mean that generously in a kind of they haven't really looked at the countryside as somewhere to go, and because they can't go anywhere else, it's off, and they're discovering the wonders of British countryside not everybody has behaved perfectly you know what sort of advice would you like to sort of give people who come across your land yes and I think that is you know that old I'm saying you know get off my land and that's about (laughs) farmer leaning on his gate with his shotgun I think is a thing of the past um as long as people do behave correctly and I think we all want to see more and more of the general public in the countryside looking and learning and seeing what we do as farmers because that's our 
that's our consumer, that's our customer. And so it's great to be able to share what we do. And I think, um, you know, the countryside code is a really good thing to go to. So as you're walking around the countryside, particularly in the spring when there's ewes pregnant or with young lambs, there's ground nesting birds, the wildlife is all there with its young, you know, keep your dog on a lead or keep it, make sure it's under control um, so that it's not disturbing farm animals or wild animals. Um, pick up your litter, take your litter home with you. When you go through gates, leave them as you find them. So if it's open, leave it open. If it's closed, okay. close it behind you. Um, close it. But <laughs> so, maybe that's like really irritating for the, for the farmer who's trying to drive back through. Yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, it's just a case of really just behaving you know, as as a sensible person might do, and uh, you know, you're 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 the more than welcome. And I would say, you know, open your ears and your eyes and your nose, and 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 try and really absorb what's around you. And even for those people who are just walking in the park, um, rather than coming out into the countryside, do you know what that bird is sitting in a tree? Do you know what the tree is? Um, do you know what that flower is that's just coming in to blossom? You know, do, do you know what's all around you? Or are you walking with your friends, talking and not looking and seeing? Are you just looking at your phone? What's your knowledge of, of what's around you? And uh, and I think that's, you know, we're having that conversation about food, but I think it's the same when it comes to the environment. Yeah, I've, I've always thought that once you can start naming things, it really opens up an understanding of all the interconnected ecosystem it's much more enjoyable every walk and eventually i stop talking to people and have to walk on my own (laughs) i'm too distracted um but that's lovely have you ever had people uh, dogs chasing your sheep and have you had to get involved we have sadly we've we've had two or three occasions when we've had a but a you know a dog that's got away from its owner and has done some significant damage to our animals yeah you know ripped sheep sheep to pieces and ripped jaws off them and guts hanging out and you know hideous stuff and um and you know they it's often the owner's fault not the dog's fault and um and you know it's it's problematic so we have had occasions when we've caught the dog and the dog has had to be put down because it's you know done the damage and will probably do it again um they get the taste for it so well, it can it can be horrible on all at all on all farmland you would advise dogs on lead or you know, strictly dogs on leads yeah i would say on leads or, or under control you know there are some people who are very good with their dogs and can make them walk to heel and make them come back when they're called and, and you know if it's under control that's fine and and the the one caveat to that is if you're walking through a field full of cattle and cattle can be dangerous, is that if the cattle start to run at you, uh, often they're inquisitive and running at the dog, particularly if it's cows and calves. And so then my advice would be to let the dog go and the dog will run away and find its way out while you navigate your way out of the situation. Um, If you hang on to the dog or pick the dog up, the cow might go for the dog and get you at the same time. Right, good advice. Yeah, let the dog go in cows, keep the dog on with sheep and other animals yeah okay good yeah so so you're this busy farmer who um goes on tv and has all these media comments and still you found time to write a book <laughs> what, what's the book that you've got coming out it's coming out this spring is it yeah so um it's just come out quite recently um it's um 
a children's book, A Year on Adam's Farm. And um, it's really an educational book, but it's good fun. And it's all about um, the seasons of the farm with some lift flaps. Um, so you can learn about where your milk comes from, learn about combining crops. You can learn about modern technology in farming, so drones and robots and those sorts of things. And the idea behind it is to help children have a fun book to read, but also learn about the reality of, of, of food production. So it's got some fantastic illustrations in there by Rachel Saunders. Um, um, but they're fun, but quite realistic. So um, it isn't uh, too playful. Uh, it's something that you, know, you can learn a lot from as a child. And for the benefit of listeners, Adam is doing a flick through for me right now. And it looks <laughs> like the sort of book even I can manage. So um, also you're filling in the gap, that GCSE in, in understanding, well, this is a good starter course for, for learning about um, where your food comes from and a little bit more about farming. Because as you said, and, and as I've seen through what's happened over the last year, people really do need a little bit of help understanding how the countryside works in the nicest possible way in order to just look after it and, and keep coming back and enjoying it. And also antagonising the farmers. <laughs> well, I think it's about enjoying it and, and yes, and, and looking and learning, but also that common thing we all have is that we all eat and food, health and well-being are all completely connected. You know, nutrition is all about how well we are mm. and what we eat. And so making the right choices for ourselves and our, our own health, but also for where that food is produced and how it's produced has a massive impact on the environment, um, social structure of the countryside. There, that, there's some really interesting themes. We will come back to this because particularly social structure of the countryside, that would be interesting. From the things you eat on your plate, you can change the... <laughs> fantastic. Um, look, have a fantastic lambing season and I hope you get to hear those skylarks and lime hammock a bit and uh, good luck for the year ahead. Nice one. All right, cheers. So that was the brilliant Adam Henson and I really love talking to him and it sounds a rather magical place. So big thank you to Adam and his book, his children's book, A Year on Adam's Farm. It's published by Puffin and it is out already. So I hope you enjoy that. Now, um, it's the first time in the series that we've got a podcast post bag. And this is our chance to have a chat with my lovely team members. So I'll introduce shortly about some of the letters and sounds that we've been sent in by regular listeners. So without further ado, it's a joy for me to welcome back my brilliant podcast team of Hannah Tribe and Jack Bateman. Hello. And how lovely to see you. Hello. Hello. So... I should say that Jack is our producer who keeps us in line and makes sure we don't muck it all up each week. And Hannah does our voiceovers, reads poems and prose and all sorts of, as well as producing our sound escapes, which go out every Friday and are lovely audio meditations taken from the natural world. So, so here we are back again, and it's our spring, escape into spring, spring across Britain season, where we're recording mid-April. How is spring going for you both? You've, you've uh, survived the fallow period since the end of last season? O only just. Only just. <laughs> have you missed? Have you missed us both then, Jack? Of course I have. It was weird not meeting and having a chat for 
two weeks. What have you been doing with yourself? Have you been out walking in the countryside, or what have you been? What have you been up to in the in the meantime? Seen anything? Have you been allowed out of the dungeon? I've been I've been allowed out. Uh, I've took advantage of the nice weather in the last couple of weekends we've had, and uh, spent some time out in my garden, uh, giving it a bit of a tidy up. R- only moved a couple of months ago, so uh, it's a nice chance to sort of take it all back to where it should be and tidy it up and. Get it all growing nicely again. Uh, tidy it up. Are, are you keeping space for nature, Jack, or is it going to be a, a productive no, plowing no. the land for, for crops? <laughs> no crops, no studios, nothing. Just a nice, quite a few sort of bushes and trees and stuff already here, which are really nice. So we, we've kept them and a few nice plants as well. But uh, I definitely want to look into putting some of the bee-friendly uh, plants in just to do my bit. Oh, that's excellent. Well, you're rehired for the next season then. Whew. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Hannah, how about you? You uh, you managed to get out and about. Well, I do have crops. Um, I've had my first harvest of purple sprouting broccoli. Delicious. Um, we've got some lettuces on the go. Uh, the peas are growing. We've got some squash. Tomatoes are starting as well. So, yeah, it's been quite productive. This sort of sunny weather has meant that things are really beginning to go. Although we had, did have to protect everything during the weird snowy period. Cold snap, yeah. Um, yeah, it's been there. Yeah. And, and in next episode, actually, I encounter the cold snap, but we'll talk about that down the line. I almost got stuck on a mountain road. So you've got a farm, basically, to rival Adam Henson's. <laughs> <laughs> I do. If only I had the lambs. You have an allotment, is that right? Yeah. Yes. Well, my mum has an allotment and I'm sort of the... Okay, the labourer. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> um, and what about spring wildlife? Have you encountered any exciting critters and wonders of spring on your on your adventures in Gower? Which is where Hannah lives, I should say. I might have woken up a hedgehog, which was exciting, but I feel quite guilty about it. What, from, from, from its from its hibernation yes i think so is it just dozing um, in the hammock well i've never <laughs> yeah, a little pipe um i didn't see him or, it, or her i didn't see them um but there was a distinct almost like a barking coming from the bottom of the hedge as i was walking past it ah. um not a hedge not a hedge, not a hedge of... dog <laughs> no. would have been a very very small dog <laughs> okay so do hedgehogs make little barking? I don't know much. I haven't seen a live hedgehog for quite a long time. Well, I did I did record it, so we can have a listen to this little clip. Oh, how wonderful. That's a really special wildlife encounter, and I'm really jealous of that because I don't often meet many mammals I do but I had I had a brilliant wildlife encounter uh just last weekend where I went for a walk along the river on a wild bit of the river Usk. again it's kind of my go-to place for most wildlife around here in the Brecon Beacons and just outside in the sort of eastern Mon- Monmouthshire I was just got out the car and I heard some peeping from the bushes like squeaky little birds and there were two of the tiniest little bundles but they were against the sun, so I couldn't see what they were. And I didn't recognise the call. And as I got closer and closer and squinted into the sun, I, the sun glanced off their little these little orange crests that they had. And they could only be one thing, which is fire crests. 
So I checked the call later. And yeah, to my amazement, two little firecrests just playing with each other in a, in a tree. They're not massively uncommon, but they're not, they're not something I see. I haven't seen one for a couple of years now. And uh, yeah, I was delighted with that. What distinguishes them from a gold crest? How did you know that it was definitely a fire crest? They have a really sort of flaming line, a crest. In fact, a fiery crest <laughs> down the middle of their heads. And they also have quite a lot of white around the eye. I think that's the best. They are really similar. I mean, the gold crest just has... With a fire crest, it's so bright and vivid compared to the gold crest's gold crest is quite muted in comparison so you kind of go wow that's an amazing gold crest actually it's a fire crest and that's how you know really it's kind of you know when you've seen one jack you've had a, I, I i know before before we started recording you were talking about some uh some bird experiences you'd had yeah uh not been getting on with them <laughs> you've not been getting on with your local no bird. i think we're having a uh our relationship is a bit on the rocks at the moment i think oh dear tail what's happened well I've I've tried to be kind. I'm trying to I want to make sure that there's food available for them, that they feel safe in my garden and that they can come and visit whenever I can take a little look at them. I'll start to get used to some of them. I I know Mr. Robin and uh Mr. Blue Tit. Well, I'd like to meet some of the others. But they just won't have it. They're not having it. I think they they're coming less now I've put food out <laughs> than when there wasn't any food. <laughs> Oh, that's very sad. Stick with it, I think, is the, um, yeah, I, I, it's odd because this is a sort of hunger gap, but there may be. Do you have your bird feeders next to any cover at all? Like, can they, is it next to a bush or? Well, so I've moved it now, so it is closer to a bush. There was a bush that there was, I think a magpie kept coming in and he was, he liked oh. that bush for a bit and then he's gone off and the little ones seem to come in and flutter around the around the bush a bit so i put it closer to there to see if that entices them in i mean the massive neon sign as well with the uh arrow that's uh... a <laughs> <laughs> yeah. diner um yeah i think bear with it eventually they will come and you will be delighted but um it, it does take time i think i've met almost every house i've moved to there's been this sort of they're not coming no birds like me period and and then finally one pioneering blue tit appears and then before you know it you're going goodness me i have got through 20 quids worth of food this week and yes. um, and then and then you start to sh- shake your fist at them. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah i've attracted so many sparrows to my garden that they eat all the seedlings so any sort of spinach or chard that i've ever tried to grow has been obliterated by baby sparrows but they're such lovely balls of fluff that i'd, I'd starve for the sparrows <laughs> All that effort. All that effort. <laughs> anyway, this podcast post bag is also about the listeners and what things we've, what lovely things we've been sent in, messages, and what we also call sound of the week, where we've asked, we ask you, the listeners, to send in little occurrences, little wonderful audio experiences, common or rare, that will delight us and delight other listeners. So it can be anything from our blackbird's evening warble to the footsteps of a sleepy hedgehog in a Welsh hedge. And anything in between. The sound of a waterfall, the sound of a tractor. We like all of it. And we've got actually a lot have built up since the end of last series. So we're going to do two this week on top of Hannah's hedgehogs. I have a sound here from across the pond. This is from Blake Enos in New York. Um, so he's got a an interesting sound, a different sound 
for our British listeners. Blake was in upstate New York and recorded the tail end of the Daub Chorus. The most prominent song is of the American Robin, and they are very interested to learn that the American Robin is not at all related to the European Robin, and was only called such by early European settlers because it had a similar red breast. Yeah, that was that. Thank you. That was lovely from Blake, and he has been listening to the podcast since the beginning, which is pretty terrific. And and says it's been a virtual escape to the UK throughout lockdown. So I, lo- I love that. That's really sweet, and I hope lots of people are getting the same sort of sense. Jack, how's your how's your sound of the week? Well, I've got a sound of the week. What's what's your what's your sound <laughs> of the week? Sorry. Well, <laughs> uh, I have a sound of the week in from Richard Coop. I think that's how you pronounce your surname. Uh, from Middlewich up in Cheshire. The description I've been sent this <laughs> with is uh, lambtastic sounds. And when you've got that, I think you're in for a treat. And uh, it's a lovely listen. That was totally lambtastic. Um, that was one for the yous out there. <laughs> um, uh, That's lovely. And it's the sound of the countryside right now. Basically, step outside and lambs are being born. They've been being born since January, but I think April, March and April are just so terrific for that lovely kind of bucolic soundtrack so thank you very much richard for your soundscape and please do send us more soundscapes you can send them to editor at countryfile.com now i just have a small finale here so we've got this lovely review on apple Podcasts, five star review and i just liked it it's got a lovely lovely tone and i think it's it's very kind it's from knitter 369 and knitter 369 says wonderful i adore this podcast it is slow quiet, contemplative, descriptive, curious, interesting, varied. Finishes with definitely not everyone's cup of tea, <laughs> which I think is sort of enigmatic, but I, I think it's a compliment and um, I, I, that's really sweet. So thank you very much, Nitta369. You've, you've given us just the little boost that we all need. That's episode two of the podcast and we are returning next week with episode three which makes logical sense. I left my house in South Wales, Monmouthshire, the crack of dawn to go up to Unis here in sort of mid-North Wales, but it always takes a long time to cross Wales, no matter how early you start. And it was snowy when I arrived. It's beautiful sunshine and these marvellous oak woods and estuary. So it's a lovely blended habitat of wetland and woodland. And I had a brilliant time. Well, you can hear next week whether I finally resolved a 25-year quest to see a particular species. But before we go, we have one more little treat for you. Carrying on the theme of spring on the farm, our very own Hannah has found a lovely poem by the great rural poet John Clare, who wrote largely in the 19th century, early 19th century, and this is called Young Lambs. The spring is coming by many a signs. The trays are up. 
the hedges broken down that fence the haystack, and the remnant shines like some old antique fragment weathered brown. And where suns peep in every sheltered place, the little early buttercups unfold, a glittering star or two, till many trace the edges of the blackthorn clumps in gold. And then a little lamb bolts up behind the hill and wags his tail to meet the yo. And then another, sheltered from the wind, lies all his length as dead and lets me go close by and never stirs, but baking lies, with legs stretched out as though he could not rise. So for now, it's goodbye from the three of us in the podcast studio and we will return next week.